Welcome to the Tech and Main Presents Podcast with your host, Sean St. Hill. Sean is the CEO of Tech and Main, a technology consulting firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Listen in as thought leaders share their tips and insights about what's going on in the world of technology. And now, here's your host, Sean St. Hill. Thank you for joining another episode of Tech and Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today, we will be speaking for a second time with Mitzi Hill. Mitzi is the chair of Taylor English's Data Security and Privacy Department. Mitzi, welcome back to the Tech and Main Presents podcast. Hi, Sean. It's great to be back. Thanks so much for having me on a repeat performance. Yes, uh, so nice. We had to do it twice. And so, um, Mitzi, with that, um, for those that may not have heard the first episode, um, why don't you catch us up a little bit on you know what's been going on? Well, um, while we've all been locked up at home, um, we are our respective state legislatures and some federal legis- legislators have been pretty busy in the privacy arena, um, as have voters actually. Um, probably the biggest privacy development since you and I last spoke is that California has updated its landmark privacy law with a new set of ballot measures that were approved by California voters in the fall election and will take effect uh, 1-1-2023. The acronym for that collectively is the CPRA. Um, The second probably biggest noteworthy development is that Virginia has become the first state this year to pass a new statewide privacy law. And we expect that others are going to follow suit. There are bills pending in Washington, Florida, and other states. This is Washington's third effort to try to pass a statewide privacy law. So sort of first big trend is California is beefing up its privacy law. Second big trend is other states are jumping on the privacy train and Virginia was first in 2021, but there may be more. Um, And then the third big thing is that with a democratically controlled Congress and a democratic administration, um, we have known that it would be likely that they would try to make some federal um, case for privacy. And indeed, there has already been a federal privacy bill introduced. Okay. Um, and you know, it's a long way from becoming a law. So I think the states are really where we need to be watching more closely. Um, but the bottom line is that whether you're looking at the state level or the federal level, American companies are going to have to get far more comfortable with the idea that the data they collect from individual human beings is no longer solely a business asset and is is now something that has some rules attached to it um, for how they can collect it and how they can use it. Okay, so Mitzi, thank you for sharing that. Um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned CPRA yeah. and CCPA. Yeah. For those in the audience that aren't thoroughly familiar with the difference um, between the two, can you highlight what some of those differences are? Sure. The CCPA is the first. Um, it is the California Consumer Privacy Act. It was passed in 2018 and it took effect 
January 1st, 2020. Um, it also has a set of implementing regulations that took effect in, I think, August of 2020. Okay. So you have a statute and you have some rules from the state attorney general about how some of the statutory purposes are to be adhered to, basically. And that bill was the first um, true privacy bill of the modern era in the United States. It applies to companies doing business in California who meet certain size thresholds, either by the amount of data they process or the amount of money they make. Um, and it essentially, um, it, it does several notable things. The first is that it specifically requires um, explicit notice to be given to um, individuals of a company's privacy practice. It confers on those individuals certain rights in how companies handle their information, including that they have the right to contact the company and see what the company has on them. They have the right to ask for the company to delete their information. If a company sells individual data, the individuals have the right to either opt out of that on the front end or request an opt out later. Um, so this kind of bill of rights concept, if you will, for consumers and the data that companies collect about them. Um, it, it does some other things as well, but one of the biggest things that got people's attention in the corporate world is that it also, for the, for the first time, establishes a private right of action under one of these modern privacy statutes. And what that means is that individuals can sue a company if the company suffers a data breach and that individual's data was part of it. Um, as you know, there are certain conditions to that, but right. most privacy legislation, including the previously most scary privacy rules in the world, which were in Europe, only allow for enforcement by regulators, they, which is a much more limited set of people and um, is not, it's not welcomed by any company, but it is certainly an easier universe of, of potential um, disputes to manage than an unlimited pool of individual plaintiffs who might think they are aggrieved. So that's a, that's a big deal. So that's the CCPA. Um, what California voters approved in the fall was essentially a, a package of enhancements to the CCPA <clears throat> that tweak a few things and then establish some new substantive um, requirements or prohibitions. Um, it's gonna tweak who is covered by the law it's going to tweak some of the notice provisions and the consumer rights. So consumers will now, in addition to the right of access and deletion, they'll have a right to correct any data that a company holds about them. Um, it establishes a separate regulatory authority in California to enforce the CCPA. So we now have essentially a privacy police squad in California um, that can come after companies that are not adhering to California's privacy laws, but are subject to them. Uh, and then it does some other things as well that are more or less complicated, depending on kind of the business you're in and how much business you do in California. Okay. So Bitsy, let's, let's say um, I have a company, right? Mm -hmm. And it's headquartered outside of California. Um, mm -hmm. Should I still be concerned with CPRA? 
Yes, because the combined CCPA and CPRA specifically apply to companies that are not based in California, but that are um, doing business with individuals in California. So if you have employees there, if you have users or customers there, if you have um, potentially other individual connections there, you may be subject. There is a partial safe harbor right now for employee data or for data that you gather only through a B2B relationship like you're selling to a California company and you have the email address of the you know, accounts payable person that's your customer. Okay. Um, th there is a par partial safe harbor on that stuff right now. Unclear whether that will last and it is not complete. Um, but clearly if you have customers or users in California and you make um, uh, $25 million a year or more in annual revenue, anywhere, not just in California, um, or if you are um, dealing with the data of more than somewhere between 50 and 100,000 Californians, depending on the, the, the act, you are probably subject to the CCPA and or the CPRA. Interesting. So it's not so much where you're company is physically located, this is very much driven by where your customer base is and some other metrics and requirements. It is, it's determined by where your customer base is or where other human stakeholders may be located. And in that, and, and those other metrics that you mentioned. And in that um, regard, it is similar to the European privacy rules, which explicitly apply to companies outside of the EU but who are doing business in the EU. Um, the idea behind all of these privacy rules is that they are akin to consumer protection legislation. Okay. And so the idea is not regulating businesses that are in our state, it is protecting people in our state from businesses wherever they may be located. Okay, and so it's, it's interesting because you, you also mentioned um, Virginia, and you know they're very CCPA-like privacy laws that you know are. I think you said they're they're in effect as of the first of this year. Um, in they were passed earlier this year. They okay. Take effect uh, one one twenty twenty three. Twenty twenty three. Okay. Great. Thank you for that clarification. So, it it seems as though um, we are starting to see that flywheel turn. Um, you know, just a little bit faster, uh, you know, Virginia being the second of 50 uh, states, you know, and so without a national law, you can see where, you know, over the next couple, three years, I would imagine, you know, each of these legislative bodies in the state will, you know, come out with their own version of, you know, CCPA or CPRA. I think that's right. And, um, you know, I, I, and I think even if we get a federal law, um, you are likely to continue to see activity at the state level um, so that we would have both a federal law and some patchwork of state, law, state laws. But if we don't get a federal law, you can guarantee that there will be a patchwork of state laws. Okay, so Missy, this is a 
this is a curiosity question. Um, so if I have, if I have clients in California and Virginia, um, but let's say there's a data breach in Florida, um, does CCPA or the Virginia law um, factor in to breach notifications or possible fines or anything of that nature? It might. Um, it, it complicates it, certainly. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, historically what we've had is that if you suffer a data breach, the relevant law about whether you have to give notice, whether you're, there's a fine, whether you have to notify the attorney general, whatever, is based on the state of the residents who were affected by your breach. So if your company is in Florida, but it suffers a data breach, and it has customers in California, Virginia, Alabama, Washington, Wyoming, whatever, you would have to look at the laws of California, Virginia, Alabama, Wyoming, Washington to figure out as to each of those people, do you owe them any kind of a duty, right? Okay. And what CCPA does in California is that it says, if you have a breach and it involves the information of Californians and you are covered by their laws because you meet those size thresholds, those metrics thresholds, and the breach was because you failed to put in place reasonable measures to secure their data, they can sue you directly. So it's a different legal analysis from whether you are required to give them notice of the breach. Um, they now have some rights in addition to the right to be notified, essentially. And that includes the right potentially to sue you. Okay. Well, Missy, let's, let's take a moment to, to brag on you and the work that you do there at Taylor English. I mean, given that we're talking about, you know, CCPA, Virginia, and their privacy laws, you know, where, where would it, how do I want to ask this? What's the best way to engage you and your team there at Taylor English as it relates to these different privacy laws? Well, what I typically do with a new client who is concerned about privacy compliance is we talk first about what kind of business they're in, whether okay. they deal primarily with consumers, you know, individual human consumers, or whether they are more of a B2B company because that probably will change their privacy posture at least a little bit. Um, we talk about where they have contacts with humans. Is it all in the US? Is it outside the US? Is it in California? How much money do they make? Do they, you know, are they covered by any of these new sort of state statutes that are gonna um, try to go after larger companies that are doing business with their residents? Um, and then we look at whatever existing processes and policies they have. Do they have a privacy policy? Do they have any internal policies that govern um, how employees are supposed to handle confidential or private information? And we, we start updating those. And then we also look at their um, vendor or customer agreements, depending on which side of the equation they're on, to make sure that they adequately address everybody being compliant with the applicable privacy laws, everybody having the necessary consents to use personal information, 
um, and everybody having um, spelled out appropriately how the how the burden and the risks are allocated if there is a data breach, right? Does the vendor have to notify you if they've had a breach? What's the timing for notifying you? Do they have to investigate? Are you allowed to audit their security? Those kinds of questions. Um, and then we try to keep up with all that stuff that we've updated as the new laws pop up, which has been about one every 18 months over the last three, four years. And I think it's gonna be more like one every nine to 12 months over the next three to four years. Oh, agreed. Again, for all the reasons that we mentioned, you know, with, um, you know, with each state legislature, you know, wanting to put their stamp on, you know, how they protect the humans and, you know, that reside in their state. That's right. You know, they will yeah, certainly do accordingly. Um, all right, so you, you touched also on the fact that, you know, we have a new administration, a new Congress, um, you know, federal privacy laws. What are, what are you, what are you saying? How are you feeling about, um, you know, what the new administration and the new Congress may be looking to do as far as federal privacy laws? Um, you know, there have been over the years, several things kicked around. There's been the idea that we would enact a federal sort of a national standard for what constitutes a data breach and when people have to be notified of that. I think you could see action on that, uh, which would frankly be really helpful because right now it is a state by state analysis. And if you have a data breach that affects people in all 50 states, you have to look at 50 different laws to figure out to whom do you owe a notice? Does it have to say anything specific? Does it have to not say something specific? Do you have to notify the state attorney general? Do you have to notify state law enforcement? You know, all of those are individual requirements on states. So that might be one area. Um, we, um, we have, have also um, seen in the wake of like the solar winds and probably then it hasn't been specifically tied to it, but if you think about the new Microsoft hack, um, expressions of interest from people in the Senate, at least, about having some public-private cooperation on data breach, vulnerability, attacks, threat vectors, you know, things like that, certainly in some industries. That hasn't gone anywhere yet, but I think it is a conversation that is likely to keep happening. So in other words, would there be some class of companies or some class of services that is deemed sufficiently important to some national interest, security, economy, the grid, what have you, that they are required to report certain kinds of cyber events to the federal government and work with them on remediation or identification or investigation, right? That I think is a long way away, but I suspect as, um, you know, we have seen over the last several years, a lot of different nation states taking cyber action against our country in various ways. And so I think, you know, there was a hack of the, of a water utility in Florida early this year, right? And so, I mean, I think you could see how the feds might think they have an interest in having certain industries, at least, probably not every company in America, but certain industries required to provide information and cooperate with a federal investigation if there were 
you know, a, a hack of sufficient criticality. Um, the, there has already been a bill introduced that is more on the, those are kind of cyber issues. On the privacy side, there has already been a bill introduced um, called the Information Transparency and Personal Data Control Act, um, ITPDCA. <laughs> it, would be, it would be nice if they gave these acronyms that were easier to remember. Truncated a little, right? <laughs> right, exactly. We're going to call it the Federal Data Control Act. Um, that would basically do some of the things that the CCPA or the Virginia legislation or, you know, GDPR have done for those jurisdictions, which is set up some rules about processing of certain kinds of personal information, what, what you can do, what you can't, what you have to tell people, you know, those kinds of things. Okay. So, and that is, it, the bill has been introduced. It is you know, it's just a bill. Mitzi, you, you, you bring up an interesting argument when you mentioned the fact that, um, well, two things. One is, you know, the, the bill that was introduced um, is not anything more than a bill, right? Yeah. And um, there are members of Congress that have other priorities. Right? And so how do we, how do we get their attention to um, maybe consider moving a little more swiftly on, on some of these types of things? Well, I think they will be lobbied pretty heavily both for and against, right? I mean, okay. there is um, um, there are a lot of consumer groups who are very, um, very attuned to personal privacy issues and who would very much like to see some broader standards, maybe some national standards. Um, I think there is a faction of big business that frankly would like to have some standardized national rules if it meant there would not be a patchwork of state rules. Um, you know, devil's in the details there. Um, but I think you can think about, the, you know, the telecom lobby, the Silicon Valley type lobby, um, the consumer organizations, all of these um, outfits have representatives in DC who are going to be talking very closely with representatives and senators about personal privacy in the 21st century. And we know that the Biden administration is um, interested in cybersecurity measures. It has not as such really taken a big stand on privacy that I'm, that's making a lot of waves. I mean, I'm sure it has said things, but you know, the, the recent pandemic bill, for example, includes in it $2 billion for the federal IT budget, which is in part to make sure that the federal IT system can handle things like a national vaccinations website and, you know, the distribution chain for vaccine development and delivery and administration because there is no funding to manufacture, develop, and administer vaccines nationally. Um, but it is also designed to harden the federal IT network against attack uh, because those things make us more vulnerable and we need to have those things up and working if everybody in the country is supposed to be reliant on them. And because we have seen so many different and disparate kinds of threats from nation states and other bad actors over the last few years. So we know that the administration has... Um, 
some technologically savvy people in it and it is interested in cybersecurity is not clear to me, this is one of my, um, whether they are also interested in personal privacy or whether they will leave that to Congress um, and to the lobbying that goes on there. Okay, well, as, as with all things, Mitzi, time will tell, right? Yes, sir. Well, Mitzi, thank you so much for um, giving us that legal perspective on privacy and um, you know, just kind of giving us your insights and your expertise um, on that particular area. So now we are going to ask you some questions um, that are specific to Mitzi. And so the first one is, because you are a huge Lyle Lovett fan, who <laughs> besides Lyle Lovett have you been listening to lately? Well, you know, um, Lyle Lovett has, has done something pretty interesting as part of the pandemic. He has done a series of online concerts where it's oh. him and another musician remote, okay. each of them remote from another, uh, from the other, and they talk to each other about their music, their body of work, their history, funny stories, you know, oh, the night I met Johnny Cash or whatever. Um, and they each play music. Um, and so that's been fun. But who have I been listening to besides Lyle Lovett? I've been listening to a lot of um, Jason Isbell, um, who is a, he used to be with the drive-by truckers. He now is the lead of Jason Isbell in the 400 unit. He's a musician out of Alabama, which is my home state. Okay. Um, and I just, I think he may be the champion lyricist of our time. Um, his storytelling is unparalleled in my view and his, his playing's pretty good too. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Supporting the home state. I like it. That's uh, right. So staying in your, uh, home state, um, as a big university of Alabama, football fan um, yes. and seeing as you have a clear monopoly on the number of national championships um, you know that that you guys have been winning um, how many more national championships is coach Saban gonna have before he retires well obviously as a dedicated Alabama fan my wish list would be infinity <laughs> um, I recognize that is neither possible nor appealing to anyone but an Alabama fan. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. He's, he's certainly been there. He, he certainly doesn't have anything left to prove to anybody. That right? is for sure. And um, he is at an age where a lot of people would say, I have nothing left to prove and I've got kids and grandkids and I want to spend my time with them, you know, or fishing or restoring model cars or, you know, whatever it is. Um, let's go for this though. Right now, Alabama has 17 national championships, not all his obviously, but that's our, that's our total. Let's say he takes it to 20 and then he, and then he cashes out. So, okay. All right. You heard so, it here first. Heard it here first. Three more. And then coach Saban rides off into the sunset. All right. I, I, he, I, I don't it. want that to happen, but that's yeah. Okay. Why not? It's as fair a guess okay. as any. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, all right. So Mitzi, how about the best place you visited domestically during the pandemic? Well, the only place I have visited domestically is um, Savannah and Charleston. So I will, I will nominate those. Um, okay. They're both lovely cities at any time. 
they are super interesting if you are a student of history. I mean, both South Carolina and Georgia, people tend to forget were part of the original 13 colonies. Um, you know, we think of Massachusetts, we think of Pennsylvania, we don't really think of the low country. Um, and, uh, and, you know, scenery's beautiful, weather's great, food's good, you know, I mean, there's just not much not to like. Yeah, no, I will, I will 167% agree with you there. Um, Savannah is one of my favorite cities, um, Savannah or Hilton Head, um, yeah. you know, are, are both great places uh, to visit, you know, for all the, for all the reasons you mentioned, um, history, food, um, you know, weather, uh, close to the water. Yeah. Right. So. And if you're, if you're into it, I mean, the history part, I think is really compelling about both of them because they both have a very different colonial history, but super interesting. And then sort of turning to the more modern age, um, there is a battleship parked off the coast of Charleston that has been converted to a museum of retired military aircraft. Really? And yeah, it's called Patriots Point, and okay. you can go out there and see all kinds of stuff that our different branches of our military have flown in conflicts throughout the years. Um, we went, my dad was um, naval aviator in Vietnam, and his plane was an A3, and there are not very many of them, and they have a retired A3 on it, and so we went out and saw that. So um, it's a it's a pretty cool day if those are the things that you know crank your tractor. <laughs> no, those uh, those those things definitely crank my tractor. Um, so uh, we lived down in Warner Robins um, when we first moved to Georgia, and mm -hmm. um, there is an Air Force Museum um, in Warner Robins. Okay. Uh, that is um, just amazing to um, walk around just because, I mean, you know, there are full-size airplanes, you know, in cool. like three or four different hangars on the property. Um, but then, you know, the, the history of, you know, who's come through Warner Robins, um, you know, I mean, the different world wars, right? You had um, there's a there's a wing um, in one of the hangars that's dedicated to the Tuskegee Airmen, you know. So I mean, there's just this this wonderful history, right? And yeah. and it was sitting right there in our backyard. So um, you know, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. So we made um, many a trip to uh, yeah yeah the the museum there. Well, next time you're in Savannah, you should go to the Mighty Eighth Museum. Um, the Mighty Eighth was one of the squadrons that flew in World War II, and they were based out of uh, Savannah. Okay, Mighty Eighth. I will have to. I will have to check that out. Yep. And Patriots Point is the other one in Charleston. In Charleston. Okay. All right, Mitzi. Thank you for uh, adding to the local bucket list. Hey, that's, sure. That's uh, that's good stuff. All right. So, Missy, let me find out from you. What teacher at any level had the most impact on you? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I had a lot of really great teachers, I thought. Um, but I'm, the one I'm going to mention has unfortunately just passed away. Um, her name was Carolyn Perry. She was my English teacher when I was in ninth grade. And what I said about her to someone was... She is the first adult I remember treating me 
the first teacher I remember treating me like I was a capable person and not just a student, if that distinction makes a difference. Yes, that, that absolutely does. Um, and some of that may have had to do with my age. I mean, you, you know, you get to a point where you're not, you don't have to be directed all the time as young students do in order to get them from point A to point B. Right. Um, but she just was a smart and lovely person. She cared a lot about her students. She was a big cheerleader for her students. And um, she found ways, I think, to make a lot of us feel, found, found ways for each of us to feel like individual contributors. And that is a real, that is a rare gift in anybody. Um, and she was, so she was definitely in the right profession. Oh, that's, um... Mitzi, I'm going to tell you honestly. This uh, this question is, I think, by far my favorite question, yeah. um, because it 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 doesn't cease to amaze me. Um, I mean, I've spoken with folks that have, you know, done a PhD at Oxford, um, you know, and and some of everyone in between. And when you ask that question, it's amazing how um, you flash back to just the amazing feeling that that teacher or instructor gave you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and not to sound corny, but like there's that song, you know, um, the wind beneath my wings. Right? Sure. Um, you know, as the husband of a teacher, um, I, I think that is very, very appropriate. You know, um, teachers often will be some of the first people to you know, encourage that student. Um, my wife teaches second grade, and so not only does she get to teach, but in 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 a number of instances, she also gets to help protect, and um, and encourage, and you know, um, do a lot of behind the scenes, you know, hugging and you know, reassuring. And so, um, yeah, whenever I ask that question, I, I just love the answers that I get. And so, um, yeah. Thank you, Ms. Perry. Uh, for... Yeah, thank you, Ms. Perry. It was it was um, both sad and heartwarming to see the thing, the tributes that uh, you know my friends and uh, and lots of other people who came through our school posted about her on social media when she died. And um, one of my friends in particular, um, gosh, I'm not going to remember the word now, but there's a particular word that she said every time I use the word X. I think of Mrs. Perry because I learned it in her class and she was the first one who kind of gave me permission to use it. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a $5 word, not a, right. yeah. <laughs> and I thought, boy, for an English teacher, that is the legacy you want, right? That Absolutely. is, that's what you want to hear from your students who are, you know, 35 plus years out from your classroom. So yeah, that, yeah that's, um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, legacy and, you know, the, the legacies that people leave. And I think, you know, teachers leave some of the most amazing legacies, you know, and it's often, you know, I mean, you talk about the, you know, the, the pebble that, you know, drops in the pond and the ripple just keeps going. I mean, that encounter with a teacher literally is that ripple, you know, that, that keeps going on for years beyond you know, that initial contact. So um, 
Yes, it is. And I feel fortunate. I had a lot of those. We could sit here and talk about a lot of my other teachers too. So oh, that's, that's good stuff. Um, so yeah, yeah shout out to, shout out to Miss Perry, uh, Miss St. Hill and all the other teachers um, and for what they do for our students. Absolutely. All right. So um, Mitzi, we are going to jump in the time machine and we are going to go back to 18 year old Mitzi. Um, what advice are you going to give your 18 year old self? Oh, um, what would I tell my 18 year old self? Be kind, work hard, be fearless. <laughs> I love it. Be kind, work hard, and be fearless. Um, that's good advice for us today. I mean, honestly, you know, I think especially um, coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, that's, yeah, great advice. You know, be fearless, be kind, work hard. I like it. All right. Um, Mitzi, as usual, these times go by way too quickly. Um, and so before we go, um, I just wanna give you a chance to share any final thoughts, um, any passion projects you work on, anything that you'd like to highlight before we go. Thank you. Um, in terms of final thoughts, I would just say, particularly anyone who's listening who's affiliated with a small or medium-sized company, the privacy discussion up to now probably sounds like a bunch of legal gobbledygook, but it is something that is going to be more, more and more relevant to companies of all sizes <clears throat> as we see the proliferation of privacy legislation in the US. And it is going to become another form of compliance that, that regardless of your size, you have to be thinking about. So you might as well start thinking about it now. Um, in terms of passion projects, I'm going to give a plug to the ALS Association's Georgia chapter. My, um, I sit on the board. My dad had ALS. It is a truly horrific disease. Um, but having seen what the dedicated employees at that organization have done over the last year to keep service delivery up and running and taking care of their clients, the, you know, the patients in Georgia who have ALS and their families has been truly awe-inspiring. Um, you know, like every for-profit company in the world, they have had to retrench and rethink and, you know, pivot and do less with more and whatever kind of cliche you want to throw, but do more with less, sorry, um, whatever kind of cliche you want to throw out there. But, um, you know, they, they serve somewhere between five and 600 individuals in Georgia living with ALS at any given time. And um, they have been remarkable. It is support that is sorely needed. Um, the degree of impairment with ALS is almost unimaginable if you have never known someone with ALS. And um, the work that they do to bring dignity and comfort and security to the lives of those patients and their families is priceless. Okay, well, Mitzi, we will be sure to include um, 
the link to the Georgia chapter for ALS in the Thank show you. notes. Um, so yeah, we will, yeah, we will be glad to do that. And then finally, how can people best connect with you, stay in contact with you? Well, I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and my Twitter handle is at Mitzi L Hill. Um, the, our website, which is taylorenglish.com. If you go on there and search for me, you can find my phone number and my email address. So any of those, depending on whether you want to follow or, you know, have a conversation would be the appropriate way probably to find me fastest. Okay, great. And of course we will have that in the show notes as well. And so Mitzi, uh, thank you so much. Um, this has been an amazing time. Um, so glad that we were able to, um, make it happen. And me too. Yeah. Can't wait for the next time. So yeah, me too. Hopefully the world will look a lot better. Yes. Yes. Optimistically. So optimistically. So, <laughs> and tech and main presents family. Thank you. As always, we surely appreciate you listening and be sure to tune in next time when we will have another technology expert share their wisdom. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to another episode of Tech and Main Presents. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends, and thanks for being a part of the Tech and Main Presents community.